in my extended family, there has been a uh, kind of an unofficial family pattern um, of members of the family becoming really interested in genealogy, usually around the time they turn 40. I don't know why that is. I say it's an unofficial pattern because it doesn't follow that all of my relatives are interested in genealogy, but for some reason, around the time my family members turn 40, they begin to reflect on the generations who have come before. I don't know if you have done the same. I don't know if you have spent much time looking at your family tree or looking at your genealogy. My guess is if we polled those of you over 40, the results would be different than those of you under 40, when you kind of gauging your interest in the generations who came before. But lots of people want to know where they came from, whether it's Ancestry.com or 23andMe. Like lots of us are fascinated by our roots. And I think it's, it's kind of obvious why that is. It's because our, our family tree, our roots, tell us something, don't they? They tell us something about where we came from. They tell us something about our background. We sometimes know a person better when we understand a bit about their genealogy, a bit about kind of where they came from and, and the kind of family they, they grew up in, which is, I think, probably oftentimes why if you meet someone or if you've been around CCF long enough and you meet someone at CCF, you'll probably hear this phrase from time to time, like, so, uh, so where are you from? Like, where's home? Where did you grow up? How long have you lived in the area? Because we're trying to sort of put the pieces together to understand the people around us. And this is true if your family is good, and if your values align with the values of your ancestors, like there's, there's value in knowing your family tree. But this is also beneficial, even if you would say this morning, like, Eric, if you knew my ancestors, if you knew my family tree and how dysfunctional or how whatever, fill in the blank there that you want, they are or they were, like you would understand how different I am from my family. But I would argue that there's value even in that. There's value in understanding your ancestors. There's value in your family tree, even if your life is very different from those who came before you. Because understanding our past, understanding our history, understanding our genealogy helps us to understand what we do or don't do. It helps us to understand what we value or what we don't value. And like all of us, none of us in this room have perfect family trees. In fact, you can probably think of those in your family tree that you're like, if it were up to me, I'd get a chainsaw out and kind of prune them from my family tree because... They don't represent our family well, or I'm not really proud of them. But the reality is, none of us are perfect. And none of us, even in this room, will pass on perfection to those who come after us. Like, there are things about us, there are things about our lives, there are things about our character and our decisions that even those who come behind us will say, well, yeah, but there was that one time, or they used to do this one thing, because none of us are perfect, and yet our genealogies are helpful in telling the story of us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and Jesus' genealogy is no different. And we're going to look at Jesus' genealogy this morning, 
But I think right off the bat, an important question we ought to ask as we look at Jesus' genealogy is why in the world does our Holy Spirit-inspired Bible open the New Testament with a genealogy? Have you thought about that before? Like of all the ways that the New Testament could open, it opens with a genealogy. I mean, we, we know that just the rules of good writing say that how you open a letter or how you open a book is incredibly important. And so we begin our stories with things like once upon a time, or it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, or the Marleys were dead to begin with, or in a hole in the ground, there lived a, what, hobbit. Yeah. And Matthew begins here with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he launches into this genealogy, this long list of names. And so we should ask the question, why? If all Scripture is God-breathed, it means that this is God-breathed. If all Scripture is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work, that applies to this genealogy. And so we should ask why. And there are lots of things that we can learn from this genealogy this morning, but the primary thing that I want us to see. So if you get nothing else this morning, I want you to see this from our text, and I want I prayerfully hope that you rejoice in this reality as well. Not just see it, but rejoice in it. And here's what I want you to see. Here's the the primary reason for this genealogy. It is so that we would see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That he is God's gift to us in our need. Lots of things we can see in the genealogy, lots of ways that we could go, but fundamentally we want to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is God's gift to us in our need. And as that unfolds, we're going to see the patience of God on display. We're going to see how God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan. We're going to see how he provides for us everything that we truly need. And we're going to see along the way that Jesus is the promised Messiah, God's gift to us in our need. And so to do that, we're not going to, I'm not going to read again the whole text. Beth did a great job. In fact, it's, it's no easy thing reading a genealogy, so grateful for Beth doing that. Some of you are like, I'm never agreeing to read a passage of Scripture because I might get stuck with a genealogy. I might get stuck with an Old Testament genealogy where the names are really fun. You just get a lot of consonants together without many vowels. We're not going to read the whole text again, but I want to specifically focus on our book-ended verses this morning, verse 1 and verse 17. We're going to spend most of our time there. Because what Matthew is doing is kind of establishing for us in verse 1 the way that we are to see this genealogy. And then at the end in verse 17, he's going to come back and kind of highlight, okay, this is what you are to see. This is why I share this genealogy with you. Notice how Matthew begins in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ Christ. 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right from the start, Matthew makes for us a statement. He wants us to see something. Right from the beginning, he, he tells us that this is a genealogy of Jesus. But he doesn't just say Jesus. That would have been enough had he just said Jesus in verse 1. Because as we saw last week, the very name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Like that's significant. But Matthew takes one step further and he doesn't just say this is the genealogy of Jesus. He says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And just so that we're all on the same page, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It means the anointed one. In fact, Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew word for Messiah. So Matthew opens his text by telling his audience, both his initial Jewish audience in the 50s and 60s and us today, that this is a genealogy, not just of any person, but of the one whom Yahweh saves through, who is the Messiah. That's what the name Jesus Christ means. Yahweh saves through his Messiah. That's important. There were big expectations about who the Messiah would be all throughout the Old Testament as God kind of over time began to kind of pull back the curtain on these promises of this Messiah figure who would come. We're supposed to see then that this Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the rescuer that God promised to send so that his people might be saved. So that God might bless the world through this individual. We're supposed to see that this is the one who at long last would bring justice and the reign of God. Who would gather together all of God's people and destroy all of God's enemies. Like That's what the Messiah was promised to do. As you can see, there are high hopes about the Messiah, what he would be like, what he would accomplish. Which brings up an important question, and that is this. How was Matthew's audience, which is primarily Jews living in the 50s and 60s, how were they to believe that this man who by the 50s and 60s had already lived, been crucified, brought back to life, and then ascended, how were they to believe that he actually was the Messiah? And in fact, that is the same question that we should ask when we approach Christmas and when we approach a text like this this morning. How are we to believe that this man who lived 2,000 years ago is actually the promised Messiah? How are we to actually believe that he is Christ. After all, there are millions of Jews who are alive today who believe that Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. Like they're still waiting for the Messiah. So how do we know that this guy, this Jesus is the one? And answering that question is why Matthew writes. In fact, he writes an entire book. We're just going to look at a few verses from that book. He writes an entire book answering the question, why Jesus is the Messiah. And so why does he begin with a genealogy? Because right from the start, 
Matthew wants to show us how Jesus fits the promises made about him. Specifically, the promises here related to his ancestry. Or to put it another way, Matthew shows us Jesus' identity and Jesus' future by looking at Israel's past. Like he reaches back to the Old Testament and he reminds us of people and things and places and promises made by God about the rescuer, about the Messiah to come. And the way he shows us who Jesus is as the Messiah is by taking different people and different things from Israel's past and then saying, okay, audience, I want you to trace. I'm going to trace this thread for you and show you how this thread then arrives at the person of Jesus Christ. And specifically, he does that in four ways in our text this morning. Two people and an event that all then point ultimately to the fourth, which is Christ. So if you look at verse 17, Matthew makes that clear. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So we have Abraham, if we were to diagram it, it would look like this. We have Abraham... 14 generations, David, 14 generations, deportation, 14 generations, Christ. And I want to recommend to you this morning that each one of those four things are kind of themes that Matthew is pulling on to show us Jesus' true identity. And so we're going to use that as our outline this morning. We're going to spend most of our time on the first three And then we're going to see how all of that kind of terminates or culminates forth in the person of Jesus Christ. So, number one, what I want to do this morning with each one of these four is I want to give you kind of a a statement of where we'll end up. And then I want to show you throughout that point kind of how we got there. So I'm going to give you a statement. You're going to be like, okay, I don't, how does that fit? Like, it seems like you're jumping a long way ahead. And then I'm going to go back and show you how we got there. And then we're going to make that statement again so you'll see why that statement is clear. Hopefully by the end, all of it will be clear. That's my my prayer. First, King Jesus is the promised descendant of Abraham who blesses the nations. So you can see this is about Abraham, first one in our list of four. King Jesus is the promised descendant of Abraham who blesses the nations. So in verse 1, Matthew writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in verse 17, he begins again with the generations of Abraham. Why begin with Abraham? Why not, like Luke does in his genealogy, go all the way back to Adam? Why why start with Abraham? Well, it's because Matthew is trying to do something. He's trying to show us something. Remember, he is trying to prove to us that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He is the promised one who was promised to come from the line of Abraham to bless Abraham and then bless the nations. In fact, just keep your finger in Matthew chapter 1. I want you to flip back to Genesis chapter 12. Because I want you to see this with your own eyes. Genesis chapter 12. 
In Genesis 12, God comes to a man named Abram with a message. And up until this time, Joshua 24.2 tells us that Abram and his family are not God followers. They're idolaters. They worship the pagan gods. And yet God comes and speaks out of nowhere and reveals himself to Abram. And Abram follows. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country to your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack there, but what I want to point out, this one thing, is that Abraham will be blessed so that he can be a blessing. If you get nothing from those three verses, just get that God is going to bless Abram so that he might bless the world through Abram. God is going to make a nation of people come from Abram, and that nation of people will be a blessing to the world. And we see that theme come up over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. God blessing Abraham, God blessing the children, the line, the descendants of Abraham, God blessing the nation, the Israelites, and then the Jews that came from Abram so that God through them might be a blessing to the nations. You think, well, how in the world are the Jews today a blessing to the nations? How are the Israelites a blessing to the nations? Thankfully, the New Testament, which interprets the Old Testament for us, tells us exactly what God was referring to when he tells Abram that through his offspring all the world would be blessed. You know how we know? We know because... After the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and filled all the believers, Peter goes out in Acts chapter 3, and he begins to preach a message. And he's preaching a message to all the people who have gathered, and he speaks first to the Jews, and he tells them in Acts chapter 3, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. So he's speaking to the Jews, saying, hey, you are children, you are descendants of the promise that God made with your fathers. Fathers there meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Saying to Abram, or Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, which is what we just read. so, So Peter is reminding the people, hey, guess what? God made promises to those who came before you, to your forefathers, God made promises, and specifically, God made the promise that through an offspring, God would bless the families of the earth. Then he explains for us what that means. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, which is Jesus, sent him to you first, to the Jews first. We know that Jesus said, my ministry is to the Jews, right, to the lost sheep of Israel first. So God sent Jesus to the Jews first to bless you, 
Should sound familiar, right? Because that's the same promise that God made to Abram. Through your offspring, the nations of the world would be blessed. We think, okay, well, how are they blessed? Is it financial wealth, material wealth, political wealth, military wealth? Like, how are they blessed? And we're told in Acts chapter 3 to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The way you are blessed, Peter says, is because God has sent his promised one to you to bless you by turning you from your wickedness, by reconciling you back to your creator. And as you know, the Jews, by and large, rejected Jesus. So the gospel message then, according to the sovereign plan of God, was then also directed and expanded now to the nations, to the Gentiles, to all people, so that through an offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus. So God is keeping his promises by sending King Jesus just as he promised. And Matthew wants us to see that. He comes from Abraham as the promised one of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, who would bless the nations, who would bless all those who by faith trust in him. God kept his promise, which is encouraging because God always keeps his promises. In fact, this particular promise was a couple of thousand years in coming. And yet God was patient. God worked through impatient people. And God worked through imperfect people to accomplish his plan and to fulfill his promise. I think it's also helpful when we're reflecting on how Jesus comes from from the line of Abraham. It's helpful to be reminded, if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, you know this to be true, that Abraham and Sarah were powerless to make God's plan happen on their own. In fact, when God comes to them, and he comes to them a couple of different times to make them this covenantal promise that he will bless the world through their offspring, you remember, they think that this is so funny that, they, that Sarah laughs. Right? Like, yeah, right. Do you realize that I'm nearing triple digits in age? Do you realize that Abraham is ancient, that he is old? Do you realize that we're barren, that we have tried for decades to have children and have been unable to? But does this limit God? Like, not in the least. Abraham and Sarah were old and barren. They were unlikely candidates for the means by which God would rescue his people. And yet, God accomplished his saving purposes through them. This is a reminder, friends, that our salvation, God's rescue of us, even in our sin, does not come because we are the most likely to be saved. Because we worked our way to salvation. Now, the Messiah needs to be provided for us just like a child needed to be provided for Abraham and Sarah. You see, we are as utterly dependent on the work of God for salvation as they were for a baby. 
King Jesus is the promised descendant of Abraham who blesses the nations. Secondly, I think we learn in this genealogy as we reflect on David that King Jesus is the true and better David whose reign is holy and without end. Again, just look at verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Interesting there that David comes before Abraham when Matthew lists this out for us. And I think it's because he's making a a statement about Davidic kingship. There's an emphasis here on Jesus not only being the Messiah, but Jesus being the king. And then David shows up again. Notice verse 17. The generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. Now, if you know very little about David, you you might at least know that David was the young man who killed the giant, Goliath, with a sling and a stone. But David was so much more than that. David would eventually become king in Israel, and he would reign for 40 years And his reign would be marked by military success and land expansion and conquest. And by the end of his reign, he brought peace and security to the nation of Israel. But more important than that was the fact that throughout the Old Testament, God spoke of David as a prototype for the Messiah who would come. In fact, it's likely that even during David's reign, there were many people who thought, at last, God's promised Messiah, God's deliverer has come. And as David defeated army after army, as David brought peace and security to the nation of Israel, it's likely many people thought, okay, at last the Messiah has arrived. And yet David was not the promised Messiah. He was a good king. He was a forerunner for the true Messiah, but David was flawed. David's epic reign would include adultery and murder and repeated unfaithfulness. And even though he generally sought to be faithful to God, he was not perfectly holy. He was not without sin. He was not the promised Messiah, the one who would bless the nations through his sacrificial work. But God did make a special covenant with David. In fact, we don't have time to go and read it. I mean, it would be glorious if you could read it. I would just encourage you, jot down 2 Samuel chapter 7. Go back and spend some time there this afternoon. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is reigning now. The the land has peace. They have a a measure of, of security as a nation. And he has built for himself a lavish palace. And then he realizes one day you know what, here I am sitting in my lavish palace and the Ark of the Covenant, which was the special piece of furniture that God designed and commissioned to be built, which, which housed the symbolic presence of God among his people, that piece of furniture was living in a tent. He realizes, oh, this is not good. Here I am in a palace and the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And so he decides, I'm going to build a house. I'm going to build a palace for the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to build a house for God. He talks to Nathan the prophet. Nathan's like, that's a great idea. Go ahead and do it. And that very night, though, God comes to Nathan with a message for David to say, no, you are not the one to build this house. 
Instead, your son will build this house. But then God flips it around. And instead of focusing on the house that David wants to build for God, God tells David, I am going to build a house for you. I'm going to establish your house and your line and your reign and you will have an offspring who will reign on your throne and his reign will be without end. But here's the problem. David was not a perfect king nor were his sons perfect kings. And that message is going to come loud and clear just two generations after David when David's grandson, Rehoboam, essentially splits the kingdom apart because of his unfaithfulness. The great reign of King David and the great reign of his son, King Solomon, comes to a screeching halt Just one generation after Solomon, two generations after David, the kingdom is shattered. And and after that, it just spirals downhill, one king after another. And with a few exceptions, generally, every king was worse than the king before until the people of God were led into exile. The deportation we're going to talk about here in just a minute. And yet... About a thousand years after God's promise to David, a child will be born from the house and the line of David. And he will reign, as Matthew tells us, like David did. And at first, his reign won't be over a physical throne and over a physical kingdom only, but he will reign and one day he will return. And then he will reign on a physical throne. And then his reign over a physical world will be without restraint and without end. And Matthew wants us to see this. He wants us to see that this Jesus, the Christ, is the promised offspring from the line of David. He has royal blood and he will sit on a throne. And in fact is, even now, sitting on a throne. He wants us to see that King Jesus is the true and better David, who his reign is holy because he is without sin, and his reign is without end because he rose from the dead, conquering the grave. And so how in the world can a kingdom be an eternal kingdom, even if the glory of David's kingdom didn't last? Answer, a kingdom can only be an eternal kingdom if the king is without flaw, And has eternal power to maintain it. And there is only one who matches that description. Jesus alone is perfect. Jesus alone is ruling and reigning forever. Which is incredibly hopeful news. I remember as a college student watching, as as some of you did, um, the, the towers in New York City collapse and the Pentagon on fire and news coverage from Shanksville, Pennsylvania with the the fourth plane going down. I remember thinking like as a 20-year-old college student, like what in the world is happening? It seemed like 
I had plans laid out as all of us did, and then in a moment you, you realize all of that can change in an instant. Like life is incredibly fragile. And I remember in the, in the kind providence of God that night, I'm working my way through the, my Bible reading plan. Just so happened <laughs> in the providence of God to have Hebrews chapter 12 for the nightly reading. Where in verse 28 and 29, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It could be this morning that as you hear the Christmas carols being played and as you are on the road and you see the Christmas lights and you are in the stores and you see the hustle and bustle, that all of it only emphasizes your loneliness or the pain of your first Christmas without a loved one or the suffering you are encountering because of deep, hurtful, relational discord in your life or a fear of the future or uncertainty or anxiety we go on and on and on health concerns and maybe it seems like all the world around you is rejoicing and celebrating joy to the world the Lord has come and and you don't feel it you don't feel like you're there this morning friend that's okay we can take heart in the sure promises of our God who provided his son who is ruling and reigning on David's throne and who will return and who has given us a kingdom that regardless of our health, regardless of our relationship status, regardless of infertility or whatever we're dealing with this morning has given to us a glorious kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's God's gift to us as well this Christmas in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the true and better David whose reign is holy and without end. Third, King Jesus faithfully fulfills the law of God succeeding where Israel and we could add you and I, have failed. Look back at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. So what about this deportation to Babylon? Like, what, what's that about? And to answer that question, we have to go all the way back to the time in which God led his people out of slavery in Egypt and led them through the desert, and then, because of their unfaithfulness, around and around and around and around in the desert, and finally brought them to the edge of the promised land. And there, at the edge of the promised land, Moses, their leader for all these years, was about to die. And so God, through Moses, gives to his people final instructions. And part of those final instructions includes God's promises to bless them in their obedience, and to curse them in their disobedience. In fact, he tells them in Deuteronomy 28, 36, that they, if they are unfaithful, will be taken into a foreign land. 
for their disobedience. They will be deported. In fact, he warns them of this in Deuteronomy 28, 45. All these curses shall be upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. So Yahweh, God, warns his people, but tragically they didn't listen. Like maybe for a generation here or there, they sort of listened, but as a whole, the generations who followed David and his offspring generally became more and more unfaithful, more and more disobedient until the year 586 B.C. when God provided the Babylonians to come and to take over the land of Judah and the land, what had been the land of Israel, and to carry off the people of God into exile to deport them. So clearly, God's plan of salvation God saving his people could not be found in their obedience to the law. That's not how God was going to save his people. I'm going to save you in the means of my salvation. You're going to be completely faithful to my law. No. Because over and over and over and over again, everyone proved that they could not be completely faithful to the law of God. What they needed was a king who would faithfully fulfill the law of God. One who would succeed where Israel failed. And then along comes Jesus. And Matthew again wants us to see that although none of them then and none of us now can keep the law of God on our own, which is I think why he highlights the deportation, all of us deserve deportation. All of us deserve punishment for our sin. All of us deserve separation from God. Matthew is showing us that God takes the initiative, that God provides the one, the king, in the line of David, the one, the offspring of Abraham, who would faithfully fulfill the law of God, who would be perfectly obedient, who would succeed where Israel and where you and where I fail. And by his obedience, by his absorption of God's wrath for our disobedience, he would save for all time those who trust in him. Friends, salvation is not found in being good enough. You will never be good enough. You will never be sinless enough. You will never be faithful enough. You will never be joyful enough. But God sent Jesus to earth to be born under the law, to be faithful, completely obedient to the law, to redeem those of us who as well are under the law, so that we might be made children of God. So that God's perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law, might be credited to our account, to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that all who trust in him by faith are saved. All who turn and believe that Jesus 
is the Son of God. He is the Lord, that God did raise him from the dead in our place. Might experience eternal life because, number four, King Jesus is God's promised provision for our desperate need. And I hope that that makes sense now. I hope you can see. Okay, I'm beginning to see just a little bit of why Matthew would begin with a genealogy. Not only because he's providing a bridge to the Old Testament, but because he's trying to demonstrate the identity, the mission, and the work of Jesus Christ. Who did come from the seed of Abraham as true Israel. Who is the royal king that David foreshadowed. Who is perfect in his obedience to the Father, even where Israel failed and where we have failed, who is provided as the gift to us, provision for our desperate need. That's Matthew's point. That still applies today. And that is the gift of Advent for all who believe. That there is a king who is on his throne. Because there is coming a second Advent. When Jesus will return, not as a, a baby king, but as a victorious king, he will return in victory, and he will judge, and he will create a new heaven and a new earth, and he will rule and reign victoriously after banishing his enemies forever. And we who trust in him will live forever with him. Because of this child, because of this human, the course of eternity is forever altered for those who believe. That's what's in a genealogy like this. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father, the the only real fitting response to a text like this is for us to, to declare with our hearts and our minds and our voices that although we are imperfect, that although even our best efforts at faithfulness are are fraught with imperfection, and even though our best efforts to make a difference, our legacy may not survive. Even though when people talk about us in future generations, although we pray that they see you, most of all, they, they will still see ways that we fell short. Father, we thank you that you have provided your son for us seed of Abraham, the royalty of David, faithful in our faithlessness. And so we respond by simply praising you, by declaring that you should receive all glory and all honor in our lives. And I pray that as we move about our day today, as we move about our week, as we move about this Christmas season, we would be reminded of that. 
that our heart's response to the lights and the gifts, the Christmas carols, the, the joy to the world, that our heart's response would be to say, yes, and all glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will never cease. All glory be to Christ. And it's in his matchless name we pray. Amen.